This morning we will be in Genesis chapter 48. Not much remains of this book as I look at my Bible. It's about four pages or five pages left of 50 chapters. It is a long and interesting book that lays out for us the great deeds of God and His covenant relationship with His people, but it also gives us a real understanding of what that means for us as we look at the stories of the lives of this family, as we see them rise and and fall and make mistakes and repent. And now we are coming close to the final scenes for the patriarch Israel, formerly known as Jacob. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh are mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paden, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring Also, then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God will make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. That you would stir in our hearts, O Lord, a love for the Savior. That you would convince us, O Lord, of our sin. That you would teach us our path of obedience. And that you would make clear to us the great promise of your grace. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the scene has finally come when Israel is about to leave the stage of the book of Genesis. He has lived, especially by our standards, a long life. There is a brief pause between chapter 47 and 48, but you must realize that those were 14 years that Israel lived in Egypt. 14 joyful years after all of the hardship that he had undergone, all the mistakes that he had made. Now he spent 14 years gazing on the son that he thought was lost forever. And being with grandchildren that he thought he would never see. Can you imagine that? Some of you that are grandparents here know what a great joy it is to have your grandchildren around you. And it warms your heart and it almost makes everything seem right, doesn't it? My father has a saying that I believe will not be true for me for about 
15 years. He looks at my children and he says, you know, the children are just perfect. And I say to him, are you around them? And he says, no, come on, they're just perfect. We just love to be around them. What a blessing it is. And you see, that's what it is like. As you have lived through life, you understand the things that are important. My father now has more patience than I do. When the children set the table and they don't set it right, it doesn't bother him. When they don't clean up in their rooms, he thinks it can last another day or two. You see, the older we get and the longer we are around our families, the more we understand the blessings that God gives to us. And that's what Israel has here for us this morning. It is a great and wonderful providence that this particular text comes to us on a day that the world calls Father's Day. This was not planned. Well, chapter 48 was planned to be preached on this day about a year and a half ago. But you see here the role of a patriarch of a family, of what a true father should be, understanding the blessings that God has given to him and pointing his family to the Lord. Israel is going to testify to what the Lord has done. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things that Israel will begin to testify to his family about. And I would challenge each and every one of you, especially the fathers among us, that you must be testifying of these things as well in your homes. First, Israel is testifying to what the Lord has done. He gives witness to what God has done in his life. And then secondly, he is testifying to who the Lord is. Because it's not just what God does and does for us. It is who God is that we must understand and worship. And then finally, if we know what God has done and we know who God is, we, like Israel, are able to be testifying to the confidence that we have in the Lord's future. Testifying to what the Lord has done and to who the Lord is, and to our confidence in His future. Well, let's begin then by looking at the opening of chapter 48 and remembering our context to testifying to what the Lord has done in the life of Israel. Israel is about to speak to Joseph and in terms that make clear that he has been changed by the power of God. This is the end of his life. The time has finally come. You recall as we have gone through the chapters, it seems like about every other chapter, Israel says, I'm going to die. Or I wish I would die. Or I think I'm going to die. Well, now that time has finally come. And now it is not a time, you will notice, for complaining. In all of these other incidents... He was a man that was was gripped with fear and complaining. He would say, oh, I'm going to die. All these horrible things have happened to me. I'll never get to do this. I'll never get to do that. But now, he says, the time has come for me to die, and now I want to look back on my life and to see what God has done. It's a very important time. We see this in verse 2. Joseph comes in and he sees his father Israel and then 
you have to imagine the scene in your mind's eye as he is told your son Joseph is here. And Israel summons up all of the strength in his body. And he sits up in bed. Now imagine that. For some of you young people, you're looking at this and you're saying, well, okay. He's not standing. Not exactly tap dancing. What does it mean to sit up in bed? But for others of us who know the pain of sickness or of age or of creaking joints, sometimes we are thankful to the living God that we can merely sit upright in bed. And that's where Israel is right now. He wants to have full notice of Joseph and his sons. This is a very important time. This is an interview with his son and grandsons. And he wants to get across to them that this is important and they must listen to what he has to say. And he begins to speak to them in verse 3 and he ends in verse 11. And I want you to look at those two verses in your Bibles if you have them and notice with me something that is very interesting about the beginning and the ending of this speech. Jacob said to Joseph first, God Almighty appeared to me. And then in verse 11, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see you. Do you see what Israel is doing? He's bookending everything that he has to say in the context of God and what God has done. Now this is significant. If you recall, back in chapter 27, the very first time that then Jacob used the name God, he used it in a lie. Do you remember? When he was pretending to be his brother Esau, and he had put on the the hairy arm costume, and he had gotten the meat, and Isaac had said, how did you find it so quick? And he said, um... God gave me success. So here is a man who, at the beginning of his life, used God as a manipulative tool to control others. Who had no respect for the name of the living God. And now here in his final days, God has changed him so much that he wants to tell his son Joseph, the second most powerful man in the world, son, you must understand that everything in our life is controlled by God. Everything from beginning to end. Let me tell you that at the first, when I was at Luz, God was there with me. And now that I'm here, He has given me my dream. He has been with me and He has brought you and your children to me. Do you have any idea what a blessing the Lord is to me? You see, this puts all of life in perspective. He's at his deathbed speaking to his son and he doesn't say, Son, remember, buy low, sell high. He doesn't say, Son, do you remember all those times at the road crossing where we had to wait because of the traffic. He doesn't say, son, do you remember when we put that addition on the tent and they did a sloppy job? You see, 
All of those things that consume our lives now, that are things that focus our lives, especially in the busyness of raising children. You see, at the end of your life, you won't even remember them. You will be pointing your children and your grandchildren to the living God who has sustained you through all of life's ups and downs. This is who Israel is. You see, Israel was a man who lied about God, who wasn't really close to God. He was a man who did not trust God. He always had a plan. He always had a scheme. But now you see, Israel knows that God is his and he is is God's. Look with me at verse 3. He tells Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. He says, you must understand, God is with me. His presence is here. And implicit in this is, Joseph, you must have the presence of God. And you must teach your sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they must teach their sons. That is what we do, son. That is how we lead the family. I am the patriarch and I am passing on. You will take my place and you must someday give this same speech to your grandchildren. Because you see, the work of the Lord is not sporadic. It is a work that works covenantally through families, through the work that he does in fathers appearing as a a benefit or a blessing in sons who then in turn grow up and make the Lord their own. And then they pass it on to their own sons. Some of you have sons right now so young, you can't even imagine them being a father, right? You're just happy if they wear the same color socks. And yet that day will come. You cannot prepare them for that day on their wedding day. Fathers, you must be preparing them for that day today. You must be at work now. And the hard thing about that, fathers, is the least effective way is by what you say. The most effective way is by what you do. How you trust the Lord in front of them. How you recount how you have seen the blessings of God and how it has affected your life and how you live differently because of it. You see, Israel wants his children and his grandchildren to be dependent on God. He wants to pass down that legacy. What are you preparing to pass down to your children? Money? Property? heirlooms, an incredibly passionate love of the same sports team that you have. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, as long as they're not the primary thing. You see, men today, what we need to be doing in this world now, in this culture, in this state of the church, is we must be active as men, preparing our young men to be the men of the next generation. You must stop and think every moment when you are tempted to complain about the world now or the government or missions or the state of the church, you must understand that your sons and grandsons must live and conquer through that. And you must prepare them. You must point them to the living God. The other thing that 
Israel points out and that we must understand is he is speaking of blessings that he is thankful for. He has been changed by the power of God, but he is also testifying to the blessings that God has given to him. Now, there is a danger with blessings. It's twofold. The first is, when we receive blessings from the Lord, we are tempted to make them our own doing. You know, it's the funny stories that we tell about how important we are and how this never would have happened except for our wit or our skill or our hard work. You see, there's another temptation. And that is to complain about blessings that we think we deserved and don't have. If only this person wouldn't have gotten in my way. If only this circumstance wouldn't have happened. Then I really would be happy. But you see... Israel here passes down to his son and grandsons. Not a bitterness for a lack of blessings, not a credit that he thinks he deserves, but rather he explains that God has done just as he has promised. He said, God Almighty appeared to me and he blessed me. He told me he would multiply me, he would make me fruitful, and from me would come a company of peoples. And he's sitting here saying to himself, I'm already seeing it before my eyes. I never would have thought of this. When he made this promise to me, I didn't even have a girlfriend. And now I have children galore. And my children have children. And we are so blessed. You see, one of the important things we must remember in the legacy we give to our children is an understanding of the blessings that come to us from the hand of God. Are you teaching your children to be thankful? Not just to say thank you politely to someone, but to be thankful. There is a third thing, and that is that Israel testifies that God has been his comfort in sorrow. Life is hard, isn't it? It's full of disappointments. It's full of hardships and loss. And you can just imagine here that Israel does something that we've seen very often. He's, he's having a conversation with someone and he gets reminded of his beloved wife, Rachel. Now, there's nothing really in the text that would make him go there, except for, I think, in my mind's eye, that he's sitting there looking at his son Joseph and at his grandsons and that he sees his beloved wife's face in their faces. And he does what older people do. He tells the story. This could be the 40th time Joseph has heard this story. But you see, he's also bearing his heart. He says, Joseph, when this happened to me, I thought I might have died. Your mother was the love of my life. I worked 14 years for her. And, and the Lord took her from me in the midst of a birth of your brother. Can you imagine how hard that is? But you'll also notice there's no bitterness in his voice. There is no... There is pain, but that pain is handled because he knows that the living God is his comfort in all of this. You see, what God has done for us is he has not only promised to us, he has not only changed us, he has blessed us, and he has given us his comfort.
The second thing that we see is that Israel begins to testify, not just to what the Lord has done, but to who the Lord is. And He is first and foremost here, the God of His people. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. And He said, this is the God of my father, Isaac, and my grandfather, Abraham. He's a strong God. He's a God who blesses me. The Lord God is a strong tower. And if we are willing to be honest with ourselves, we will understand that we need strength. We're not as strong as we think we are. And we need wisdom. We're not as wise as we think we are. And we can pretend that we can do it in our own strength and that somehow we will get along and muddle through. Or we could be like Israel and understand that God is the God of His people and He has not left us alone, but He is our strength and He is our wisdom. You see, God does not come in a vacuum. Israel testifies to this beginning in verse 15. He says, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. It is indeed critically important to have a personal relationship with the triune God. You cannot be saved by the faith of another. And if you are thinking that here this morning, well, I'll do okay. My daughter prays for me. Well, I'll do okay. My son-in-law prays for me. Well, I'll do okay. My mom and my dad, they pray for me and they take me to church. Then you must understand the Bible doesn't understand that kind of saving faith. Saving faith is placing your trust and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work to save you and no other. It is doing business with God. But we must also understand that while that is critically important, that is not all of the story. God is not simply a being who has billions of individual relationships with individual people. He is gathering to Himself a people, a family. And this is what Isaac and Abraham knew. And it is what Israel confesses here. He says, this is the God of our people. This is the covenant God. He is with us. Do you know why we have Father's Day? Step back. Do you know why we have fathers? It's not what you think. The reason we have fathers is because of God. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians that all fatherhood is named after God. The very reason that we have families, the, real, the very reason that we have relationships is because God is a relational family being. He is gathering to Himself a family. And so now more than ever, as we face difficulties in our families, as we see the definition of family changing, as we see the definition of marriage changing, we must understand that the answer is found in the God of the Bible. Not in laws, not in cultural norms, 
Not in bedrocks of society, but found in the living God and His living Word. Because you see, all family gets its being from Him. This is who He is. But He's not just the God of His people. He's also, Israel tells us, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He is our shepherd. Now, we understand this analogy because we've all thought about and read about the good shepherd in the New Testament. But think about what a shepherd means to you. Don't just think about a painting or a, or a picture or something that is, that is going on in, in a Bible page. Think about what a shepherd would mean to you. You see, first and foremost, we understand that we all need a guide. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't know where we're going. Right? And, and we don't even know where to go. It is the shepherd who steadies the sheep. Who makes them aware of where they're going. And makes them confident that they know and they're going to a good place. So when you aren't certain what the future holds, when you don't know what we'll do next year, when you don't know where you will be in ten years from now, you must understand that's not important. It's not important for you to know your future. It is important for you to know the one who holds your future. He is your shepherd and your guide. And then we can relax, can we not? We can trust in Him and we can live life as He has given it to us. Because He is always with us. We can never do it ourselves. You see, God won't allow it. He's our shepherd. He's also, Israel tells us, a deliverer. He is the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. The living God is a messenger of hope in your life. Of course, the most famous angel in all of the Bible is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's messenger to the world. He is the one that brought the tidings of salvation and grace. And this is who God is in your life as well, because we must understand and know that we need redeeming. We need rescuing. We need rescuing from the evil that is out there, and we need rescuing from the evil that is in here. And that is who God is. Thirdly and finally, we see Israel not only testifying to what God has done, not only testifying to who God is, but this puts him in a place where he can have great confidence in the Lord's future. Now imagine the scene here. He's so weak, all he can do is sit up in bed. And his son and grandsons come in. He can't do a thing. This is about the most difficult position for a man to be in. Right? What do we like to do as men? Show me a problem. I'll fix it. I'll get somebody else to come help fix it. Let me do this. Right? 
Now here Israel is faced with the future of all of his family and he can't even get out of bed. Here is a man who knew all the angles, worked all the deals, and he knows now that there is nothing that he can do to make things right. Nothing that he can do to protect his grandchildren. But the marvelous thing is, he's not bothered by that at all. Because you see, he's confident that the blessings that came to him will also come to them because of who God is and what God has done. It is very interesting that in Hebrews chapter 11, it is, it is this incident that is used as the apex of the faith of Jacob. In Hebrews 11 verse 21, after going down through the litany of this Giants of faith, it says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Think about that for a moment. All of the things that Jacob did in his life, seeing the ladder, wrestling with God, facing Esau, dealing with Laban, on the run, this is the apex of his faith. He's doing nothing but trusting. He is deliberately associating his grandchildren with the covenant and saying, what I trust the Lord for me, I will trust the Lord for you. Do you have this kind of hope for the next generation? You see, I fear because of the times that we live in and because of the great blessings that have been showered upon us We have hope for the future generation based on fluctuations in the stock market or in where conflicts are in the world or what types of weapons we can develop to deal with those conflicts or what the next iteration of our economy would be. Is your hope for your children and your grandchildren the living God? Do you trust Him And not have fear for your descendants. Do you trust Him and say, I don't know what it will bring. The good Lord could bring famine to my children and grandchildren. He could bring persecution. He could bring wars. He could bring wholesale destruction of God's Word in the church. But there is one thing that I know, and that is He will always be with His people. No matter how bad things get, no matter how unexpected things are, no matter all the rough and the tumble of a life like Israel's, God will not abandon His people. You see, we have come to a point in American Christianity where we think if things are not smooth and good, God has abandoned us. And that is a lie of the devil because he wants you to think you are abandoned and you are alone and you have no hope. But the promise of the Scripture is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is how families are led, fathers. Are you inculcating this in your children, in your wife, in your family? Is this how you are an encouragement and a leader in your home? There's also something else here that is a challenge to us. 
Not only must we hope in the blessings for the next generation, we must understand that it is God's will that governs, not ours. And so there is this interesting scene. Ephraim and Manasseh come up, and Joseph, the wise steward, has it all planned out. He knows Dad can't see, so I'll help him out. I'll set the kids up to go exactly where they're supposed to go. It is dummy proof. Dad, all you got to do is stick out your hands and say the blessing. And you can imagine, as the grandchildren come forward, Israel throws a curveball. He does one of these. Now, I want you to see how significant this is. You remember Joseph. This is a man who exhibited unbelievable patience in chains. Unbelievable patience in slavery. Unbelievable patience when his brothers are selling him. This is the spot in the Bible where he gets annoyed. Can you imagine that? He's, he's actually somewhat angry. Don't be, don't let the word it displeased him make you think that this is like when you would like a Coke product and someone serves you Pepsi, you are displeased. He is agitated. He is annoyed. He doesn't understand this because you see, even a man like Joseph is a man who has sin and what he has is he has a plan. He says, I know what I'm doing. Look at what I, look at what I've done in Egypt. Look at how I got you all back here. Look at where I'm, I am a guy that is pretty smart, Dad. And Israel looks right at him and he says, I know what you're doing, son. I'm not upset that you did it. But you have to understand that I need to follow God's will, not yours or mine. And we might even imagine if this conversation went longer, he would tell him another story. A story about his dad, Isaac, and how God had told Isaac that Jacob would be the one to get the blessing. And Isaac had looked at God and said, not if I can have anything to do with it. And Israel says, I've got to trust God. I don't know why he's doing this, Lord. And, and, and it's not like one of the sons is going to have a horrible existence. They're both going to be blessed and be great, but the younger will be greater than the elder. So we learn a lesson here that God knows better than us, and we are to follow Him, even when it seems unpleasant. You see, Israel has learned that lesson, and he goes forward. He has learned from the errors. He's learned that there is no fighting God. And then thirdly and lastly... He testifies to the hope that is founded in the Lord. You'll notice that this chapter ends. Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you to the land of your fathers. He says, I'm about to die, but I'm not bitter about it. Because I know God's in control. He will bring you to the land of our fathers. Now, remember here what this means. This is not the wishful statement of an old man. This is a prophecy from a man who knows that his family will be slaves in Egypt for centuries. 
And He is putting this Word out there to go from generation to generation so that when life is hard, when it's a bad day at pyramid building, and somebody says, I'm just going to quit and I'm going to lay down here and die. Someone will come along and say, oh, no, you can't. Do you remember Grandfather Israel? He said, we will go back to our land. Doesn't matter what we see. It doesn't matter what we're afraid of. God is in charge. Do you have that kind of hope for your family? For your people? This is the kind of hope that God wants for you and for me. To lead our families. To lead them to the Lord where all hope is found. Let's pray.